Welcome to the Art of Climate Dialogue Stories from Iowa, produced by myself, Vivian M. Cook, and the Eco Theater Lab. And welcome to today's conversation with artist, educator, and community leader, Lance Foster, who will start our episode by sharing an artist statement for one of his artworks. And please check out our podcast website to see Lance's artwork for yourself. Adonwe is a word in our tribal language, which means many things. To heed, to give heed to, to pay attention to, to attend to, to watch, to watch on or over, to take care of. Po is not a command, but an exhortation, a hope and a wish for the one who listens to do what needs to be done, what is good to do. This artwork is a representation of the connection between Nidi, the Yellow River, and Itara, the Great River, the Mississippi, here at Effigy Mounds. This is a connecting corridor, a travel path for animals and plants along the river systems, like branches that connect to larger branches all the way to the trunk, the largest river. The corridor connects the cores, places of refuge and reproduction for plants and animals, many of these often at the connecting points along the rivers. These are places where the animals and plants disperse from and to keep the land healthy. And then there are the bears moving along the river, representing the top carnivores, which are only supported by the healthiest of lands, the ones closest to the original ecosystems they have always been a part of. The grid is how the land was divided up by the Jeffersonian grid of townships and sections, and it is fragmented by human farming, residences and utilities, which obliterated the original land and its refuges and even block the flow of life along its corridors. It is a question people need to ask. Is it possible to have both land that is healthy with its cores, corridors, and carnivores as the original communities, and human community needs as well? The hand represents this decision to harm or to help, red for life and black for death, because it is the same hand of humanity that does both. Addressing climate change is urgent, but in order to move toward action, we first have to find ways to talk about climate change with one another. The Art of Climate Dialogue, Stories from Iowa, is a podcast series featuring 13 conversations with artists, farmers, community-engaged researchers, and community organizers and activists who have all used arts and storytelling strategies to talk about climate change and agriculture. Through this podcast, they generously share these strategies so that listeners can implement them in their own communities. I'm Vivian, and I invite you to explore the art of climate dialogue with me. As we enter into these conversations around climate action, sustainable agriculture, and community-engaged arts in Iowa, the Eco Theater Lab and I want to first recognize that Indigenous nations have been leaders in such conversations for centuries and continue to be today. Iowa now occupies the homelands of Native American nations to whom we owe our commitment and dedication. Iowa is now situated on the homelands and trading routes of the Iowa, Meskwaki, and Sauk, Oto, Omaha, Ihankdawa, 
and Santee. And because history is complex and time goes far back beyond memory, we also acknowledge the ancient connections of many other indigenous peoples here. The history of broken treaties and forced removal that dispossess indigenous peoples of their homelands was and is an act of colonization and genocide that we cannot erase. And as a result, indigenous ecosystems within Iowa have suffered from extraction, degradation, and unsustainable agricultural practices, contributing to the ongoing climate crisis. Understanding and addressing these injustices is critical as we work toward climate dialogue, action, and justice in our communities. My thanks to podcast interviewees, Shelley Buffalo, enrolled member of the Meskwaki tribe, Lance Foster, enrolled member and tribal historian of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska, and Sakawas Nobis, Plains Cree Soto of the George Gordon First Nation for their collaboration in developing this acknowledgement. Lance M. Foster is a member of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska of the Iowa Nation. Raised in Montana, he received a BA in Anthropology and Native American Studies from University of Montana, as well as an MA in Anthropology and an MLA in Landscape Architecture from Iowa State University. He's an alumnus of the Institute of American Indian Arts. Lance was the director of the Native Rights, Land, and Culture Division of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, a historical landscape architect for the National Park Service, and an archaeologist for the U.S. Forest Service. He taught at the University of Montana Helena College of Technology. Currently, Lance serves his tribe as Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, consulting for the tribe on environmental and cultural compliance. He founded the Tribal Museum and is an Iowa Language Advocate and Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act Officer. He serves on the Indian Advisory Council of Iowa's Office of the State Archaeologist. Lance is the author of The Indians of Iowa and has appeared in the documentaries America's Lost Landscape, The Tallgrass Prairie, Lost Nation, The Iowa, and Life Before Fairfield. An artist and educator, Lance resides with his wife in White Cloud, Kansas. He was elected vice chairman of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska in the fall of 2019. He led the effort in establishing Iowa Tribal National Park, Bajoje Moatanani, in Kansas, Nebraska, and the return of the tribal boarding school, the Presbyterian Mission in Kansas, both of which were achieved. He is on the board of the National Association of Tribal Historic Preservation Officers as Southern Plains member, and on the board of the Nebraska chapter of the Nature Conservancy. Welcome, Lance, and thanks so much for joining the podcast and for sharing with us the artist statement from one of your pieces. I'm very glad to have you here. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. You just started off by reading your artist statement for Adawe Ho, an art piece you created for the 2019 Reimagining Iowa, Iowa Artist Exhibition, presented by Be Wild Rewild. This exhibition featured artwork from five Iowa artists and, according to the exhibit introduction, explored a future for Iowa by those whose ancestors used to live harmoniously here during a time when people were not driven by desires and unessential possessions, but took only what was needed for survival. Can you tell us more about this exhibit and the two pieces you contributed to it? Yes, it was conceived of by 
on a man who is running an organization called Be Wild Rewild. His name is R. Ross Gipple, and his idea was to fund an exhibition that would engage with the idea of rewilding. And rewilding is the idea of letting land heal itself by removing human intervention as much as possible and letting the land be itself. And in fact, rewilding, wild, the word comes from the root, same root that means one's will. And so what is the land's will? What is the land's will? That is to rewild something. So several of us put together an exhibit. It's uh, myself, Ruben Kent, Sydney Maybear Purcell, and Kayla Kent. And we put together several pieces that would kind of connect with the idea of rewilding the land up there, Effigy Mountains, which is an ancestral location for us. It's the point just before we divided from some of the other Siouan-speaking people, like the Omaha and Dakota and other people, other relations to us. So this was um, you know, a little before 1000 AD and even further back than that in the Woodland period. Um, my two pieces, Adanwe Ho, which I just described to you, and Motanani, which is about the original land, a man looking out over the landscape and the rivers, and then seeing the different invisible side of life in the sky with the morning star there. Those were my contributions to that. Um, I remember Sydney, for example, used a gumball machine that had seeds, depending on which one had come out, uh, of some of the native plants around the area, like milkweed, that sort of thing. I think it did kind of bring in not only a native point of view to a place that is often distance and time from people of today. People don't they almost seem to think the only real Indians existed a long time ago, and all the rest today are either not real Indians or don't exist at all. So it was a good way to kind of get people thinking not only about the land, but about indigenous people and this, our connections to uh, effigy mounts. Thanks so much for sharing that. And you said you feel like it was a good way to get people connected to this history and present of this landscape. Can you talk a little bit more about how people interacted with the exhibit, how people interacted with these pieces? I think people did um, use Sydney's machine and bought a few of the seeds out of it. I also know that some of the pieces are in Iowa Here to Stay, which is a show that Sydney curated at our historic mission here and then also down at Atchison, Kansas. So I think these pieces have been jumping around from place to place. I've heard good things from people about it. I unfortunately couldn't go. I do know that Ruben gave a pre presentation there. I think Sydney also talked about the pieces. But it was right there in the visitor center at Effigy Mounds. So a lot of people got to see them. So it was in a pretty public place. Right. And I think sometimes they came there just for that show that Ruben and Sydney put together, presentation. But also just when people travel around looking at just as regular tourists to different places, you know, there's art in the parks is one of the things that people do. And they come upon an alternative interpretation, a different way than just the archaeological static kind of pictures of the past. I think what I heard made people really think things in a, in a different way. You described what Adangwe means and about this call to heed or to watch on or over to take care of. How do you feel like your artwork, especially that piece, encourages people to look at our relationship with the environment differently, think about 
what's happening with the climate differently and our role in that? Well, I know that it has the representation of the Mississippi River and a connection, the two large kind of circles being those cores that connect to the river along the Yellow River. And then it has, just like if they're the most famous kind of mound up at Effigy Mound are the marching bears. And so I um, had those mounds representing real bears connecting from along the river and then joining down there at Yellow River. And in the background, there are some faint drawings of tractors and row crops and uh, earth moving machinery and stuff. So that kind of is like what they call a palimpsest, where something that existed before is kind of rubbed away, but you can still see its traces. And that's the thing. And we'll talk more about that too, about the fact that people feel and then think. And so, although it's somewhat narrative as a piece, it's also uh, a way to get people to ask questions about what it means. Like a lot of artists do, I don't want to just come out and say it, although I usually end up coming out and saying it, but I think it's good for people to just kind of wonder at first anyway. Yes, definitely. And you said your piece shows this merging of what's going on with the land and now, the questions we need to be asking about our relationship with the land and the life around us, and then also the historical landscape. And there's like a conversation between those. So you are an anthropologist and historian yourself. And so a lot of the visual artwork that I've seen of yours and your writing explores this connection between the history, present, and future of our landscapes. How do you think documenting our history through art, in particular, can help us move toward a future that addresses climate change? Well, I hope we address climate change because it's not just a future. The greatest effects will be noticeable in the future, but we notice it happening all around us now. So it's not something that's going to happen. It is something that is happening. I don't know how people can engage with it. It's pretty big. You know, all the battery-powered cars that you have, they all have ripples throughout the environment. You know, I mean, although we want to try to save carbon emissions and as being one of the huge effects, the fact is that to get those cars, you still use petroleum to manufacture them And the rare earth minerals that make up those batteries have to be mined from somewhere, whether it is some of the worst effects in places like Brazil and China. But then here, even here in Nebraska, there's a mine, Elk Creek Mine, which is slated to start rare earth mining as well. So the point is not just technology. Technology is going to fix this. It's going to have to be a totally different way of understanding life and wanting less and thinking differently. And I don't know that people will be able to do that, but you know, you got to try, right? And you got to help people begin to grapple with the disturbance we feel inside that something isn't quite right, that we cover up with more and more hamburgers and cars. <laughs> right. And you're talking about whether technology is a fix and how we often think more lately than we're looking at technology fixes as if they're easy instead of really examining the narratives we're telling about our relationships with the land and how that's affecting climate change. You and I have talked about the differences between progress, sustainability, and resilience and how those are not equivalent terms or concepts. How do you explore the differences between those in your artwork and why? One of the things I learned in grad school is that in order to talk about anything, in order to really fruitfully discuss anything, you have to get at the definitions first. If you can't agree on definitions, then it's really hard to get anywhere in your discussion. For example, if I wanted to say, hey, think of a chair, 
Okay, I'm telling you right now, think of a chair. Not that you think of a rocking chair, a kitchen chair, a recliner, a stool. I mean, you know, if you can't agree on something as concrete when I say, what does a chair mean? You can't come to an agreement on that. Then how can you come into agreement on what progress is or sustainability or resilience? So, I mean, you have to find a common ground first. And with a lot of us today, we think so differently. Our worldviews are so different, not just politically, just even how what existence is, that you almost have to spend a lot of time working on what you agree about, what the definitions might be. So progress is to, that it's essential to get from one point to another, right? And that's just mm -hmm. the meaning. But the idea behind it is that things are going to get better somehow. It's always going to get where we make more money. We uh, have improved health. People's idea of progress is very different. Right. <laughs> like what does get better mean? Right. What does get better mean? How do you define that? Sit down with 10 yeah. people and say, what do you mean by getting better? You're going to have at least eight or nine totally different ideas. And sustainability, like mm -hmm. there's a catchphrase now to say, well, sustainable development. Well, how, okay, if you're developing things, sustainability means that it will be able to carry on at a certain rate. At a certain point, because you have a finite world, how can it be sustainable to that point? I mean, if you want to look at the cycle of rain, that's sustainable because there's only so much water in our system and it goes into the clouds, it goes on the earth, some it soaks into the ground, some goes in the ocean, then mm -hmm. evaporation, it goes again. That's kind of like sustainability. Water's on our planet for millions and millions, billions of years in that sense. But, but how can we be economically sustainable? What does that mean to people? You know, especially how does sustainability work with progress or does it? If something that we're doing right now is already destroying things or causing problems in our ecosystem or in the world system, whether it's human or other, the ripples are going out. How is that sustainable anyway? I do think that resilience is something like, for example, when we had the pandemic, the whole idea in, in um, the economy was had developed from warehouses to the idea of just in time which means how many uh, boxes you're of whatever it is you're selling. If five are going out, then five should come in on a regular kind of conveyor belt sort of idea. So the trucks keep going. You don't ever fall behind. You already ha always have whatever it is in stock. And as long as the systems are no hiccups like floods or bridge collapses or pandemics, then that flow is fine. But once you hit a pandemic, all the warehouses empty out. And then like even now we have problems with like eggs, right? Now they're talking about smuggling eggs across the border from Mexico mm -hmm. because just in time, so efficiency, which is what just in time's about, is not the same resi as resilience. Because resilience is like having that spare tire in your trunk. It's not efficient because it takes up space in your trunk, but when you need it, it's sure nice to have. So those are the kind of things that people need to discuss before even we decide what we need to do or what, what we can do. These differences in my artwork, I'm just beginning to engage with that. You said you're just beginning to engage with it. And I know that you have a lot of different modes of art that you operate in as a visual artist and a writer, but also as a community leader and what it means to design processes for storytelling and for people to come together and talk about these questions. Yeah. I mean, one thing this podcast is trying to explore is, yeah, what you said about the importance of people getting on the same page and even having a conversation 
to define what we mean by climate change and how it's affecting us and what what is sustainability, what is resilience, what is adaptation. I mean, what I've seen even in my own community is people aren't really talking about it. And I think that's across a lot of our communities that we don't talk about it enough. And then it's really hard to actually make action plans and to become more resilient together. You said you're you're exploring these topics more recently, but I know several of the pieces that I've seen of yours that are from quite a few years ago, You, I think you were starting to ask these questions, at least as a viewer, looking at your artwork. We've talked about a painting of yours titled Wimanje Intui that was in the Iowa Gallery at the World Food Prize, Hall of Laureates. And that that means our crops. And you've talked about how the history of the World Food Prize, where this piece is displayed, is directly connected to the industrialization of agriculture, which I think brings in (laughs) a lot of questions about what progress means. Because the industrialization of agriculture and the Green Revolution, I think, were seen as great progress, but are now contributing a lot of those practices are contributing greatly to climate change. So how has your painting which highlights the origins of Iowa agriculture and Iowa culture, contributed to conversations around agriculture today and in the future and what progress means. Well, that painting, Umanjihintawi, that I did for the Hall of Laureates is kind of a, a part two. The very first one was when I was going to school at Iowa State, and there was a, uh, as part of the American Indian Symposium that David Gradwell and others had established there in the 70s, every year there was a new speaker, and that one was about agriculture. And in that one, it was the same woman who was actually planting the seeds and the four different colors of corn. And around the boundary of it, there was a John Deere tractor stylized, kind of talking about today and a big plume of dust behind it. And even then, I was exploring the idea of our traditions, which are the first seven feet of the earth are made up of our people who have been buried for thousands of years here. And the farmer going along this tractor and not even thinking about that or about all the things that created that soil that provides him for a living and, and all the things that we need for materials of the society we live in now so that was the first stage. And then when the Hall of Laureates, uh, the World Food Prize, asked me about doing one for their gallery because they needed something that talked about the indigenous contribution. At that time, I thought, you know what, let me do the part two, which is in the fall, because the first one was spring planting, and then this one would be the fall when she's getting ready to harvest and all the things that she planted are ready to go, ready to harvest. And thinking about it and then visiting it later in Des Moines, walking through the gallery and seeing that. And then coming here, you know, I was raised in Montana before the big Montana gold rush sort of thing (laughs) that's going on now. And it was very different Montana back then than it is now, which is all about, again, money. And I'm seeing Iowa change. When I was taking landscape architecture there, they said over 90%, 98% of the land is different than when we left it, our Iowa people left it, for the settlers to come in when we were pushed out. And so it's very different, and the water has become undrinkable in many cases, and and everything's pretty poisoned. It took me living here and understanding the uh, input that it took to create the Green Revolution that helped to feed the world. Not only, though, that feeds the world, it creates new products and corn syrup and all these things that also increases diabetes and 
And a lot of the, it's for fuel. It's not really for food anyway. It, it's really complex. We all have narratives, right? We all have nice stories because the human being, not only do we learn through images, we learn through stories. And the story is, you know, feeding the world. And it's a beautiful story. But when you look into it and you see that we're, we're not only poisoning through nitrates and stuff that we need to get the green revolution, then it's like, wow. The deeper you look, it's kind of like with a lot of the, what they call greenwashing, a lot of the um, solar stuff, you know, you find out that it takes all the mining to be able to do that. Or the wind turbines, after the blades wear out, where do you put the big old fiberglass blades? It's never, it's never a simple one and done situation. There are always ripples. There are always all these connections to things that at first you don't think about it because you think you're doing a good thing. And the deeper you look into it and you see how many connections there are that create unseen and cumulative effects that you begin to wonder. And then you realize maybe all I can do is be an honest witness because there's, there's so little that I can actually do about it. But maybe I can help people see more clearly what's happening. And even that, is that good? Is that good to help people see more clearly, especially if you can't do very much and if it creates unrest in people's hearts and despair and all that? I mean, is that really a good thing? I don't know. After a while, you just do what you are. And and that's kind of what I'm grappling with, really. You say being an honest witness is sometimes all you can do. And maybe that's what you're doing and the people on this whole podcast series are doing through artwork and stories is how do we talk about what's happening now, what happened in the past and trying to envision, hopefully envision something different where we have maybe figured out a way to be more resilient. I've talked about with several people on this podcast series, this difficult balance between the despair and depression and, and tragedy that comes with talking about climate change and where there's room for hope without hope being like a false narrative that just say, right. oh, things can get better, but where's there room for genuine conversations about what a hopeful future could look like to address the climate change that's happening now? And I'm curious how you have navigated that balance in your own work. You mentioned briefly at the beginning the other piece that was in the Reimagining Iowa exhibit, Mawatanani, and that you've actually created several pieces with this image of this figure who's surrounded by his environment in some way, looking, connecting with the environment in some way. I know it's, you've put the figure in multiple paintings, right? In this one, Mawatanani, you say in your artist statement, means the land the way it was originally made by the creator. And you talk about how today many people don't trust the land and so we're disconnected from it and have made it captive to our purposes in many cases. And that that leads to this the kind of tragic, uncertain how to see things the way they are. And, and I'm wondering how you use artwork to show an alternative relationship with the land and how that balances hope and despair. Yeah. See, I think kids are born with an innate sense of a living world. You know, they look at their pets and they see a kind of a person. They see uh, somebody that looks back at them, maybe can't talk, maybe kind of talks to them a little bit in a weird kind of way. They have monsters under the bed and in the closet. They have cartoon, they have stuffed animals they name. They really reflect on it 
what they call an animistic sort of worldview, which is everything is alive. Maybe the big tree in the front yard, you know, they both enjoy the shade, but they also climb it and it becomes like a friend to them. So this kind of dynamic kind of feel that the kid has before we get labels on things, before you, whether you go to a traditional Indian ceremony or whether you go to a church or whether you go to a science lab or whatever you're later on, all these feelings underneath get channeled into these different kind of group identities. There's something dynamic in every living human that's that sees the butterfly as something like yourself, something living and holy. And I think that uh, like the work Motanani, uh, we don't have a word. No, the reason it came up with this is because the Iowa National Park that has been kind of another art project in a way, which I've been devoted to over the last couple of years, is kind of derived. We don't have a word for or a national park. We don't even have the word for wilderness. Wilderness it is not a concept in our traditional culture. Wilderness is something that came about in the European dichotomy of a world that you dominate and domesticate, and then that world out there in the mountains or whatever that is wild, that is Jesus fasted in, and that's where the devil was, and that's where scary wolves and little red riding hood, and we don't have that. It's not part of our our idea. We're all related. Everything is connected. And it's not to say it's a fuzzy Disney world. No. I mean, they're dangerous animals. They're dangerous places, you know, places you don't go. But it's all a living thing. The, the creator, that the everything that exists is here, the mystery created to be here. And it all has a role. We may not know it, but we're limited. We're not on top of things the way the Western mindset is. It's a human the central part of the world. We see it it's a connected part of the world. It's all a big community. So Malata is wild food. It's all the greens. It's all the wild plants that you use for medicine and food and shelter and all the tools you make. So Malatanani has to do with that's where all that comes from. That's the original world. That's that's the real world. The world we built is on top of that using that, but it's not the real world. When there are periods of collapse in our civilizations, the real world comes back. We saw that during the pandemic when the animals started coming out more and crossing bridges and going in the streets and the air cleared. And mm -hmm. even in India and places where there's a lot of people, nature just for a year or two began to slowly start coming back because that is the real world. And things like money and credit cards and economic systems those are things we've made up that we all agree to believe in, but they're not the real world in that sense. They will not be forever. They weren't before we came on the scene. So that's kind of what that figure represents. It's like I started painting that sort of figure when I was in my teens and 20s of a man in a vision quest, looking out, trying to understand the mysteries of the world, different places he found himself. And the latest version I have, the sticker I have for the Iowa Tribal National Park has a man and his wife and, and child there all together because it's a family. Before it was a single person. And now it's it's really more about how you connected together, looking out at the future in the world and trying to, I don't know, it's not about living in the past. I do use past imagery because that's what people connect as identifiably Indian. But I've also done pictures with an, like an older lady out on her stoop in front of her house and broken down cars with sagebrush growing through it. And she's looking at a grasshopper on her cane, you know, establishing that re relationship. Because all of it around us 
it's still alive now we buried it with our stuff but it's still there and it's ready to come back and i don't know that we want it back as a society i don't know what we see as our end point even got people thinking that it's the matrix or something somehow that that's the real world this computer world in their mind we're so distanced from reality that people mm-hmm. think chocolate milk comes from brown cows so it's it's a lot of work to do and if you can find one little piece of it that you can try to help people with cool to engage with the world i taught art for about 7 years up in helena i had a lot of veterans from afghanistan and iraq and stuff who had gone through some very bad things and to have just an hour where they could draw and go outside and look at the beauty in things, really understand the beauty and the transience of things. I could see calmness coming over them and they just really, you set them on and pencil and stuff in front of them. You help them maybe do the eye a little bit like this. And look, that's your going for realism. And they were happy. And uh, I think art can really help heal people. So they can engage with whatever truth they have to face is whether it's climate change or something in their own lives. That's something that has come up quite a bit over my interviews in this podcast series. Both the idea that our relationships with each other, like moving from the figure of a man interacting with his environment to the figures of a family and how we have to agree what we believe in, I think that's really insightful (laughs) to think about is that we do we make agreements all the time about what we're going to believe or not believe in. And like you said earlier, how we're going to define the conversations that we have to have, whether it's about the economy, the environment, our social relationships, or how they're all intertwined. And I think it's really fascinating how the art that you create, you said you use past imagery because it's recognizable, but it's also showing relationships and how relationships with each other and the environment not only could be, but have been and still are for some people that having a different relationship with the environment that is more reciprocal, that is more about community isn't just in the past and also isn't just imaginary, that it's something we can consider now and that you're doing that with your students or have done that with your students too, giving them opportunities to process. And you've talked about that with me when we've talked previously is how art can help us process our relationship with the ecosystems we're living in, especially when those conversations are polarizing and can be paralyzing, I think, in a lot of ways. That's that's true because English is very much an object-centered language. Nouns are put in different relationships by verbs. In our Iowa language, Bakhoje, the um, language is much more verb-centered. It is about action. And in some points, actions become things. In some places, like, for example, the word for God, Wakanda, yeah, we used that long before Marvel Universe did, but Wakanda, the word Khan, Khan means something that's so old or so big, so mysterious, is beyond your understanding. It's beyond all that. And then you put Da at the end, and it means in a certain place, and Wa in front of it becomes, it's something. So the Khan is the process of a mysteriousness of something being hard to understand, but then you put in front of it and it becomes something that we call Wakanda, which is like a Manitou, which is like a community of 
of spirits under God, who made everything my own, the earth maker, who put all these things together in a mysterious way that we recognize. And we just almost like live just a little bit of it. And then it's too late. And then we fade away. We can know we become mm-hmm. part of the mystery ourselves. We, all, we always were really part of the mystery. And that's the thing. I think West is just still not understanding and accepting is that nature is not something separate from human beings. Human beings are part of nature too. So if you want to understand how people need to live or interact, it's you learn that from seeing how nature is and how ecosystems are and how the things that live for a long time, how they are. So art is a process and you end up with a piece of art that you know you hang on a wall or something but and as any artist knows or any craftsperson of any kind knows or farmer when you're doing the work is when you get into another place in your mind and then the product is something different the product is something different. sometimes it succeeds and sometimes it doesn't but is the process that's as important and so the process that you see in the ecosystem is really the important thing i remember there's a saying that every sacred place is where the mystery stopped. And the, at those places is where you can see the mystery. That's why things are sacred, are whole there. But yeah, it's all stuff to kind of grapple with and try to... And if you say it, just like I'm saying it now, it becomes pedantic and you're trying to explain something that really can't be explained. <laughs> you can learn things through stories and you can learn things through art. Well, you've said that. You've talked about how art can help us think and ask questions without without telling us what to think that it creates these pathways for for people to maybe engage without it being pedantic or without telling people that they're wrong or hitting them over the head with facts and figures that start to become mush because we just are kind of overwhelmed by them all the time what do you think it is about artistic techniques that can facilitate such a process You've worked in a wide variety of disciplines and positions in anthropology and history and architecture and archaeology and education and museums and government. You've been in all of these different spheres. So what do you think artistic techniques can offer to climate dialogue that is unique from other disciplines? Well, for me, I I guess I think different than I don't know, you're supposed to think because I always just figure I'm being me. and. Part of what I am comes through in anthropology and part through art and part through whatever. So there's just who I am. And sometimes you can find a position that pays in a particular aspect of who you are. And sometimes you can't. And you're out there creating art or taking long walks <laughs> or whatever. But I think, for example, there are a lot of things we can learn from, say, storytelling. You can tell the same story, Little Red Riding Hood or whatever, from childhood to adulthood. And it's like a flower. Every time you hear it, another petal opens and you begin the same story you've heard all your life. You can learn more and more from that very same story because it reflects, it kind of touches on something you experienced, you know, as an adult that you didn't experience as a kid. And art's the same way. And that's why artists a lot of times don't like to try to tell what the art's about because they want people to bring themselves to the art and for the art to touch on themselves. Now, some artists get really hoity-toity and weird about it and and that's part of their mystique that they create to try to make a lot of money and convince people they're geniuses and stuff. But the main thing is that art goes beyond words and it goes into something older than writing. I mean, we were creating this stuff 40, 50,000 years ago and long before we started writing, 
and uh, the animals you see in some of those cave paintings and stuff there's a lot of details and things that people don't even they're just beginning to uncover like the 3d representation from different angles animals kind of come alive or join with other animals so that's the exciting thing um land art you know like spiral jetty that's changed over time its original appearance you know the salt that builds up on it and the raising and lowering of the water level and everything so it is it becomes something different and i love andy goldsworthy's kind of work in those kind of things about the process of ice and leaves and everything on water and it is the process is important that he takes pictures of it's not the end thing which usually is transient and disappears but that's not really great in the world of art when you're trying to make a living a lot of times because then it's about what matches people's sofas or whatever which i've been criticized about my colors being too vivid for people's sofas this is probably a, a tangent honestly but this idea of you know, what kind of art do people have to make in order to make a living? But then that I think goes back to what you were saying about our agreeing how to define things and that art in a way that makes a living is for people to purchase and like hang in their homes. And a lot of the art that I think we're discussing on this podcast series is actually art that is meant for public spaces or for people to stumble upon or like you've talked about that you have all of this art that you merge with your historical and research narratives to help people connect more deeply with our understanding of history and the environment and then that you also have the art that you're currently doing that is really public and in community spaces and one thing that I hope people start to recognize more, which is happening to some degree now in some communities, that there is a different value to processes like art making and storytelling that we haven't necessarily given it, including an economic value. So there's some communities that have artists in residence that are working with city planners and working on community engagement and there actually is being given you know some sort of economic and social value yeah. beyond just aesthetics although aesthetics obviously play an important part in getting people to engage in the first place but i hope more of that will happen especially because i think people like you i mean i look up to in this work because you You've talked about how you have put your artistic lens into a lot of the work that you do in a lot of different disciplines and that you've combined it with your work in the community and how these things can go together and they're more connected than we often think. So thank you for that. They really are. I wanted to talk about a couple of the initiatives actually that you've recently started or are working on right now that are talking about community art and community engaged work that's connected to your role. So can you tell us about the Iowa Tribe of Kansas and Nebraska Arts Committee and the projects y'all have initiated so far and how you see this committee helping to catalyze dialogue about climate action? Yeah, so our tribe helped us, well, establish this committee among tribal members. As I mentioned before, Sydney Purcell and her father, Philip, artists, and another young man who works with us, Brett Ramey, they kind of initiated a mural project in White Cloud. That's kind of one of the kind of usual historical murals that a lot of small communities have. And they worked on that for a long time, you know, the weather being the weather, and they weren't living here at the time, so they had to come and go to finish it. And they did. White Cloud was 
where Paper Moon was filmed in part. And there's a lot of histories named after one of our head chiefs that we had. So there's all these different images that connect there. And people started thinking more and more about art. A lot of rural communities are very utilitarian. You know, they have nostalgic views of the old grandparents' farmhouse, you know, and maybe a pretty, you know, cornfield and things like that. And there's certainly appreciation for the history that's in these places. But art sometimes is is just kind of scarce in these places. You know, there's other priorities. So when people saw that mural, they said, we need more of that here. And we've been talking about different ways to let people know the boundaries of our reservation and our culture and everything. So the first big project that we got a grant for was a mural that ended up on the side of our car wash. And it is reminiscent of uh, ribbon work, traditional ribbon work, and the positive, negative sides that, in a sense of art, positive, negative, not morals. But the idea of like light and dark, day and night, and above and below, and that kind of thing. And they had a community planning part to this where people collected plants and, and drew patterns from the leaves and some of the significant kinds of plants that they encountered and then tracks from some of the clans that were historical and they put this all together and it was kind of like kind of a consensus design and they put it up and it's a beautiful thing and people started getting more and more excited about this because art is really about your identity and we have a bee farm a honey operation so there was a design there the water bottles, all these things that we're trying to do with part of our economic development. So art, as you well know, is just intrinsic and it's vital to revitalizing communities and expanding opportunities. People feel and respond to art. And that was kind of the core. It's a combination of our identity and our economic development that we're trying to do here in a rural place. Brett, especially, we have him hired on to do through a grant for climate resilience to engage the community on that level. He's worked with interns on the farm. We do regenerative agriculture here to try to decrease the needed inputs, you know, things like the sprays and everything. How can we create a living soil that brings back life and with the pollinators and everything? So that kind of connects with the Iowa Tribal National Park, which is kind of the natural side of things, the Mm Motanani part of our landscape, along with the Mache. The mache is is the farm fields. So, you know, we were shattered pretty badly by the missionizing and assimilation and genocide that all tribes were subject to. And now we're trying to regroup, trying to find those puzzle pieces and pieces in our memory, our collective memory and our ancestors and our history and in the land itself to try to rebuild who we are as Iowa, particularly. You know, Native American... There's no such thing as the Indian language. There are languages, you know, we all have commonalities. We all have our own differences, and we're trying to explore that through art. As Especially as a rural community, we've had pushback from people who are still conventional ag kind of thinking, and that they don't find beauty in natural things as much. They rip out all the shelter belts, and they rip out all the trees. So that you get another row of corn in there, you know? And... That's the tension, the contested landscapes we're all experiencing in rural areas. And after a while, you know, where's the beauty? I mean, I guess people have this different sense of beauty, but how do you begin to see what people find is beautiful? And that's an important thing. I think in rural communities, people have to engage with what is beautiful. How do you define what is beautiful? And is it important Mm -hmm. at all? Or is it everything about utility? Right. 
that's again something that we've talked about on this podcast in several different interviews is yeah how do we shift that definition of beauty and we have to start seeing how agriculture could be how our relationship with the environment could be in a way that still allows us to practice agriculture but also protect our rural and in small communities economic and social landscapes too and how all of that's intertwined i'm excited to see what y'all do with the committee too because i think that's something that is inspiring to see how you're bringing art and economic development and social and cultural and agricultural conversations all together which seems critical for climate resilience you also completed a mural project recently for an I-29 rest area. What is this project and how do you envision people interacting with it once it's installed this fall? Well, you, you probably know and I know your listeners have seen a lot of the rest areas around Iowa that connect with, say, different historical themes or cultural themes. I've seen one for Lewis and Clark, for example, up by Sioux City. And I've seen one for over by Iowa City. It's about writers, and and because Iowa City is so famous for its writing program, the University of Iowa there. So uh, sometimes it's a combination of art in the rest area. Sometimes they're outside sculptures and other elements that really get people curious and thinking about their world. So the one on I-29, and it's the northbound one near Glenwood, is actually connected to the importance of Glenwood. Glenwood was a culture, it was part of the Nebraska culture, which were ancestral to the Cadoans who split into the Pawnee and the Arikara. And so earth lodges are part of the, the site complex there. And so there's been efforts a long time to try to make people understand the importance of that place and create a park and create museums and things. So it's part of the Iowa Department of Transportation's effort to connect with those community interests as well as the travelers to enrich their understanding of the landscape. So my piece is kind of a larger, it's getting blown up to 10 by 14. The painting itself is smaller, about two by three feet roughly. And it is of a of an earth lodge and the life inside an earth lodge, ceremonial, also preparing meals and stuff, divided into the four seasons. It shows kind of that cycle of life throughout the year. It's going to be inside the rest area and outside they'll have like a lodge they'll have a place where people are interested in the different tools the arrowheads and things of that culture the pottery so it's going to be kind of like almost like a mini museum in a lot of ways but it'll be on the artistic side of that and there are other art and native artists there too i know um, kayla kent will have one of her pieces there again too usually with those kind of projects there's like a percentage under federal money that you have to have toward art and i think that's one of the drivers for that I think it's like, used to be 10%. I don't know if it is or not still, but they had uh, offered to pay my piece on that for 10000 And I decided to give it as a gift to the people of Iowa instead so that they could enjoy it there. And like I said, I mean, we all got to make a living, but I thought, you know, it makes me feel good that it was at least valued that way, but it makes me feel good that the people there can enjoy it. You know, when they go in there to do their business, they'll see... The image of uh, <laughs> reflecting uh, what happened there long ago. And it's important also to know in our language that if something happened a long time ago, it's still happening now. And something happening now has its roots in the long ago. 
Right. That was another question that I was curious about with this piece. Because when we talked about it before, you brought up this idea of longevity and resilience and how the Earth Lodge and seeing it through the seasons kind of encapsulates that. So how do you think this piece might invite questions or at least people to consider these ideas of longevity and resilience and sustainability in the face of climate change? For one thing, you know, a lot of, you know, the whole thing. I mean, I think people are coming to the realization that the climate is indeed changing. They're still arguing about what's causing it and what to do about it. But I think people are, you know, several years ago, people weren't even agreeing that the climate was changing. You couldn't even say climate change politically. You had to say weather because farmers know about weather, but don't talk to me about climate, you know. So parts of this painting talk about the different events like lightning and snow and the fall and these changes. So there's change in, in that. So weather as change is part of that painting. But it's also the idea of our sense of time, which is in the Western sense, time is linear and it goes from the beginning to the end. But our indigenous thought is that life, it's more like a year. There, it's never repeats itself exactly, but it's like a spiral and it comes to the same points. So it starts at a point and it spirals out. But at certain points, there's those previous line of the spiral touches another succeeding line of spiral and another event similar to that happens. It's like history doesn't repeat, but it grinds kind of a thing. And if you look at pre-scientific, pre-Christian, pre-whatever, you go look at Ragnarok, you look at the Norse mythology at the beginning and the end of worlds, it's that same kind of it starts, it goes through this thing, it ends, and then it starts again. So I think that in one way that will help think about seasonality, but also in a larger term about things that happened in the past may happen again. Both this piece and the work that y'all are doing with the committee are focused in particular on public art that is easily accessible in community spaces. Like you said, people will come upon the mural while they're going to do their business and a lot of people are going to stop that way so what do you think public art we've talked about art in a lot of different contexts and where it might be and hanging up in a museum or in people's houses or anything but what about public art being on a car wash or in a rest area what can that offer to climate conversations you know what's really cool about art is people don't even have to like it they can really dislike something but it makes them think about it and why they dislike it and why they think, what are they doing this stuff for? Because the two kinds of art you're talking about, the kind that hangs in museums and the kinds that hangs in people's offices or, or stores or places of business, their homes, that's the private side. And it may spark conversations within that group, but it doesn't spark community conversations. The museum's mainly about an artist's place in history and its importance in the world of art. I like art. I'm not really a fan of the art world because they're really different things. I like the doing of it. But I think public art is a way to get things going, is a way to get people saying, hey, did you see that weird thing over there? What's the deal with that? And they're like, well, it could be actually a thunderstorm. So why is it raining on the Indian? So, uh, but, but then there's another part that's the weather. Is that like through different pains or what? what's going on there? You know, I think most of my stuff is not that mysterious on that level. It's pretty interpretable, but you have to know the culture to get into the deeper levels of it. I think public art is the way, whether it's climate or any other things that we're going through right now, public art is great because it doesn't beat you over the head with somebody telling you, you've got to believe in it or you can't believe in it or whatever that we hear in the discourse. 
you said earlier that often artists intend for their pieces to create a dialogue. That artists sometimes don't want to talk about exactly what their pieces mean because they want to people who are viewing the artwork to bring their own interpretations, their own perspectives, their own experiences to that piece. And in that way, putting it in public spaces invites a conversation or people to ask questions, which it sounds like the work that you've done is already doing, which I think is exciting as well. And we've talked about how, especially with public art, I think it can be hard to see the impacts or what questions people are asking because you're not always there. Like you're not going to sit outside the I-29 rest area and (laughs) just watch people interact with your artwork for days. It's sometimes hard hard to see the impacts. I kind of like just accidents. I kind of think the world has a pattern to it. For example, I'll tell you about a mural I did up in Helena, which was downtown Helena, which went through urban renewal, destroyed a lot of the things that people remembered there. And one of those parts of downtown was Chinese restaurants and part of kind of remnant parts of what had been Chinatown. And I painted... uh, and put the names of some of the businesses there, and I kind of did kind of a ink drawing, kind of looked like ink of a, one of the old men that lived there at one time. People remembered, and it got a lot of notice, good and bad. The bad was that somebody painted a swastika on his forehead, because that's where people are at these days. But the good was some of the Chinese families that knew each other a long time ago, they started, they had not talked to each other for decades. Not necessarily, they just drifted apart, right? But in talking to each other, hey, did you see they did one about, you know, the restaurant, you know, and they started talking, they got together. These families reconnected after a couple generations where they had big dinners together, they started talking again, and I think that's the kind of thing I like to see. I like organic things that just develop. I don't like study guides. I mean, they have their place, but I, I think the whole point of art a lot of times is to provoke thought rather than tell people what to think. And knowing that there will be unanticipated ripple effects. Right. And that's why I think it's exciting. To me, that's part of the art too. You said these conversations, these unanticipated ripple effects are part of the art, right? You said that as a community leader, you feel that the artwork you must often create now is actually designing ways for people to connect to the land and to each other and to tell their stories. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, our Iowa Tribal National Park, it's not clay. It kind of is clay in some places. And it's not its not art and it's not oils and watercolors. It is a living place. And sort of like found object art, you think about a place that has its own character as being neglected, has been discarded or not treated right. And then you find ways to recast it. So, for example, we had a tract of land that was given back to us, two tracts, by the Nature Conservancy that they were unable to care for to the degree they wanted to because they were so far away up in Lincoln, the Rula Bluffs Reserve. And we got that, and it has biologically unique aspects to it as classified by the state of Nebraska, different species of flowers and insects and birds and things that nest there. And then we also had the Leary site, which is ancestral to our people, um, where we traded buffalo skins and pipestone and stuff with uh, the Arikara and Pawnee ancestors. And I kept thinking, how do we preserve this place for the future? And we had a flood and then the pandemic. And I said, 
there's an idea of something that people care about, which are parks, national parks. Not just a park, because if you say park, people think swings and slides and that kind of thing. So you have to talk about a national park. And in our society, in our treaties, we are the Iowa Nation and we are the Iowa Tribe. Depending on this on the treaty, we mentioned both. So that there we go. Is it possible to have a tribal national park in that sense? And I saw that Red Cliff had done that already using that term. I thought, you know what, we can be number two. So there we are. We had a lot of challenges, you know, our casino is our big economic driver here, but it's pretty much out of the way. It's pretty small. It's like a, not like with other big operations that larger tribes have. But it is a place where people can meet and eat and game a little bit and have work mainly. It's a, it's a big job driver here. So I thought, you know, what if we have Iowa Tribal National Park and it's a way for people to connect and bring other people to go to our casino? But really, me, I'm all a gorilla artist. I'm all about how do I preserve this? My art, you know, I love my art, but it's not eternal. But the land is eternal. And how can I help as an artist use that creativity to help the land tell its story? So Iowa Tribal National Park was born and we got our mission back from the state and we're telling the story of how our changes in our culture started really there. And so I, one of the things I'm doing as an artist, as other kind of artists, is trying to do a re historical reconstruction, a painting of what the mission looked like and uh, the route. In fact, one of the panels I'm doing is like I've done graphic novel stuff too and I'm telling the story of a little girl who was stolen by immigrants during the gold rush on the St. Joe Road that went through the mission area and how she returned years later. The family, no one remembered her, nobody knew who she was and eventually she became homeless and wandered the streets asking people, do you know who I am? Do you know me? Do you know my name? Because she was only given a name, Lucy, by the people who stole her. And nobody knew. So she wandered, got sick, couldn't take care of herself, was put a uh, poor house, a poor farm over in St. Joe. And people say even after she died, which wasn't too long after she was put there, they would still see this figure going around asking, pausing, as if to ask, do you know who I am? So these kind of stories like this, those are all things that are part of the layers of history and understanding how we got to be who we are. That's I love the Gogan's painting, Who Are We, Where We Come From, Where Are We Going? Because that's essential to all of us. I think mm -hmm. all of us listening, talking, whatever. It's like, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Central human questions. Thank you so much for sharing that and that there is an artistic lens to the work you're doing and how that really does merge economic and social and environmental implications and how they're all connected. At the beginning of this episode, you described a decision that humans have to make to harm or to help to move our ecosystems toward life or death, to quote your artist statement, because it is the same hand of humanity that does both. So as we talk about ways to move toward climate action and justice we need policies that support agricultural systems, such as the ones you depict in your artwork, ones that build reciprocity and resilience, or even places like a tribal national park that's preserving history and culture and environment all in one. So especially as someone whose work has crossed over into so many sectors, including government, what role do you think arts and storytelling can play in pushing for climate policy? 
We all like to think of ourselves as thinking and rational beings, and we are, but at a deeper level, we're all emotional. And I've heard a lot of people say the same thing, which is you don't save something you don't love and you don't love something you don't know. So one of the critical things people can do and government policy, whatever, is to help people learn about the places, especially where they are, where they live, the history, the deep history of where they live, how things came to be, how they are. People love origin stories about how the rock and the land formed, the glaciers or the volcanoes or whatever that formed the underlying part of it, and the different animals that lived there for thousands of years. Some came and some went and some we no longer see here. But it all builds this large story, deep history, deep story there. And if you can arouse people's curiosity. I mean, we all think, we, especially when the older you get, the more you think you got figured out. I know that already. I don't need to know that. And I think that's how you kind of lose your youthfulness by thinking that. I think, I mean, we're all getting old. I mean, can't do nothing about that part. But at least your brain, you can stay somewhat youthful that way. And that will kind of echo through your body a little bit. So I think that it's important for you, for your children, for your grandchildren to always be curious about where you are, where you lived, who you are, how you got where you are, where did you come from? and don't have the pat answers think for yourself when you're a little kid before you got had to go to school or go to church or go to wherever you had to go to and people started telling you what to think and what to believe you were a genius you were a genius we were all right <laughs> amazing and curious and wanting to engage what is that bug why does it look like that why do the big why the kids are always asking why and then somehow the why gets squashed and then we all become labels of some kind or another. And then if you, even in your secret heart or some dream, you dream something that doesn't fall into that category that you've been assigned, all of a sudden you're, you know, you, you don't want to be thought of as somebody to step outside the lines, color outside the lines. Kids don't care that much about it. They just like the colors. I think that the, any policy that can support that kind of thing. And I know STEM is the big thing. I know testing has been for a couple gener well, at least one or two generations. But the geography knowledge, the knowledge of history, the knowledge of all that is neglected. The arts, the music, and by art, we're just talking about visual art right now, but the music, the performance, mm -hmm. the, the writing, all those things, that's what makes life worth living, really. And that's where people's minds open and and hearts open as those kind of things. So I just think it's a, a good thing that we can figure out some way to support that through policy. People always talk about funding. That's great. But opportunity is another thing uh, and education to help people do that and, and to have kids engage with their parents more when the kids are still young enough before they get into all that boy-girl stuff or into substances and trying to conform to ideas of what they're supposed to look like or dress like or, you know, all the things that people get stuck in for a long time till they get old and start thinking about other things, about what their life was worth and what they did and didn't do with their life. That's what you can do. I agree. Those are wise words. So before we leave, what are the three key ideas that you want people listening to understand about the work you do? This is about change and transience and that even God can't change history. But right now you can influence future history. And then what is the biggest recommendation you have for others who might want to use artistic strategies 
to talk about climate change, especially in agricultural communities. As a teacher and then also working with the elders here, one of the most successful things that I did that was so enjoyable was to have people create a map of their childhood. It could be a person 20 years old. It could be a person 80 years old. But I was give them a big piece of paper and say, I want you to draw a map of your childhood. That's the way you were allowed to play. You get boundaries like you're not supposed to go past this street or that field or that ridge or whatever that you could play. Some people I was shocked to find out they could only play in the backyard, right? So it was a fence, you know, a tree or whatever it is. The older you were, the farther those boundaries were, the more recent. Most of the time, people had very small footprints they could operate within. But I say, try to draw that from your past. And then you can do it any way you want. You can do it realistic. You can do stick figures. You can do whatever you want. And then write little notes. This is the dog that everybody was afraid of. Or don't go by the old man because he shoots at you or whatever it is, you know. So that's something that I think rural people or people who are non-artists or people who are urban, whatever you're at, everybody could map out their lives and the place they remembered from their childhood about what they could, what they could and couldn't do there. And then I say, now compare it to now and what has changed. And inevitably, there's some development, some buildings are torn down, some are whatever, some places are built up. And so you couldn't go to that pond anymore because there's no pond there anymore. And so people start thinking about change. And then from change, they start thinking about, well, you know, you start thinking about, Maybe, do you remember some storms that used to happen? What were some of those storms were like? Or what's different from now compared to when that, that was happening? Anything different? Sometimes there's not much different. But it gets people thinking. You don't tell them what to think, but you open up their memory so they can make it more available to them to consider change. That's a wonderful idea and exercise and seems applicable in not only communities, but in a lot of different situations and in different disciplines. A lot of people say they can't draw. My mom told me she couldn't draw, even though she, when I was a little kid, she drew the word boy and it would make a little boy's face out of it with glasses. And she said, no, I can't draw. I can just draw mm-hmm. a couple of things. Well, she's gone now. She passed. But she did the class under me in drawing. I taught her how to draw. And she drew recognizably her two grandsons and she was amazed that she could draw so what i want to tell people is that you may think you can't draw but you can draw you can make marks and as just like bob ross would have said it's all about you know making making that you can do it it'll make you happy it'll it'll be something in you that when you draw Mm -hmm. it'll open something up in you that that you haven't felt for a long time you don't have to draw like anybody else just draw like yourself that's good to remember especially when you talked about how the process of art is what can be the most meaningful in creating dialogue so making sure people understand that we just have to reconnect with our ability to play and be creative right make something how can people connect with you and your work? I do stuff on Facebook. Go to I-29 when it opens up <laughs> or to the World Food Prize. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and then come, you know, 2025 is when we plan on opening Iowa Tribal National Park, although the museum, the Mission Museum is open now and we're just beginning to install different exhibits in it. So 2025 will be opening and we'll have a permit system because we want to Our priority is to preserve the land, not create a tourist trap. Wonderful. Well, people have to check out that in 2025. And then I-29 is going to, the mural is going to be open later this year. So, and we'll have information on the podcast webpage 
about where to find your work too. Sounds good. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Lance. Well, thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Art of Climate Dialogue, and we hope you'll listen to the rest of the series. More information about podcast interviewees is available at ecotheaterlab.com. We invite you to engage in conversation with us by leaving a comment, responding to the short feedback form in our show notes, and checking out the Eco Theater Lab's website. We want to thank all of the organizations and individuals who made this series possible. This project is funded by both a North Central Region Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program Graduate Student Grant, which is supported by the USDA's National Institute of Food and Agriculture, and a Johnson Center for Land Stewardship Policy Emerging Leader Award. Our podcast consultant is Mary Swander. Our podcast musician is Omar Cook Mercado. And our podcast artist is Mosel Nita Singh. Our podcast land acknowledgement is adapted from text developed by Lance Foster and Sakawa Snobis and from conversations with Shelley Buffalo. Rosie Marku Rowe is our podcast editor, and I'm Vivian M. Cook, Community Engagement Director for the Eco Theater Lab and the Art of Climate Dialogue, podcast producer and host. Take care. <laughs>